This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, there's going to be a lot in the news today about how one year ago today, health officials in this province announced the first case of COVID-19 here. What a year it has been since then. But we're also getting an idea of the psychological impact, the toll that that has taken on people, particularly on nurses. There's a small study at the University of Victoria that has resulted in some troubling findings. It was just released overnight. So joining us now to talk about it is Lynette Stewart-Hill, the director at the Centre for Occupational Research and Testing at the University of Victoria. Lynette, thank you so much for being here. Good morning. My pleasure. Now tell me, what is it that you took a look at? How did you measure kind of the stress level in nurses? Uh, Well, we've uh, had to be a little bit inventive uh, how we did it because, of course, we couldn't have any direct contact with the nurses. And uh, so they've been collecting data um, on themselves for us, and we had them wearing a, uh, a small device that was giving us ideas of what was happening in terms of their sleep quantity and quality, uh, as well as heart rate and, and some other indices that we have for stress. And then they were also collecting saliva samples for us as well that we'll be analyzing to take a look at things like their cortisol, which is our stress hormone um, levels, as well as some other things like melatonin that also give us some ideas about their sleep and an inflammatory um, um, uh, marker called interleukin-6 that gives us an idea again of what's happening with them in terms of stress. Okay, so it's not like they were reporting it to you. You were just getting that information automatically. Yes, yeah. So we were we were collecting that data and then they did fill out some questionnaires and things for us as well. So we were trying to look at both the psychological stress that they're under as well as how that was manifesting itself physically in their bodies. Okay, so what did you find? Well, uh, we're still in the middle of uh, data collection um, and um, uh, analyzing some of our results, but their sleep quality and quantity is really disrupted, uh, which we expected to see because of the shift cycles that they're on. Um, So that's certainly one thing that we're seeing. Of course, as we would expect, the reported stress that we're seeing is very high as well. But even some of the other physical data that we're starting to see is really showing that it's having a a real impact on their body, that that we're just sort of seeing this chronic level of stress in in their body, even on their days off. So they're telling you this and you're also being, you can, the data will show you. And what kind of data is that? Like, how is that manifesting itself in their bodies? Uh, well, what we're seeing in terms of their sleep quality and quantity, that um, that that is reduced for both they're spending less time in their deep sleep and in their restorative sleep and more time in light sleep and less time overall being able to sleep. So, you know, and, and we're certainly seeing now from research that sleep is really, we're, we're seeing how important that is as sort of one of our pillars of health. Um, so that's one of the things we're seeing. When we're taking a look at some of their cardiovascular or heart data, we're seeing um, just elevated levels of, of heart rate above what would normally expect to be happening in the types of 
doing. And um, then we also have some other indices that we look at with their their uh, heart rates and things. It's uh, something called heart rate variability that gives us an idea of stress. And that's that's showing us just this chronic stress level in, in the nurses that right. even on their days off, they're not recovering from. So what is the long-term effect, Lynette, of having something like that happen? Uh, not good. <laughs> and that's yeah. why it's so important that we collect this data now. Um, because, you know, we don't know what the long-term fallout is going to be. But, you know, when we look at our society overall as, as a stress society, we know that having elevated levels of cortisol for, for long periods of time is really hard on the body. You know, it, it's supposed to be something that, that increases when we have stress and then goes back down and then increases. But when we see it just sort of go up and stay up um, and, and showing us that we're, we're chronically stressed, that, that's just very hard on our bodies. And we, we knew that the nurses were feeling that we've we've seen it in the news and we've watched it but for us to now have the evidence to be able to back that i think is going to be really important right so what should we be doing with this information what should health officials be doing with this well, right now, I think the first step is is definitely making people aware that, look, you know, this this is something that's a big concern. And then starting to look, you know, working with the uh, the healthcare workers and nurses to say, what are some of the things we can do to try and help mitigate this response and, and, and reduce some of the stress that we have on you? You know, it's it's a terrible situation that these poor nurses are in. They, um, you know, they, they go to, to work and they have to be careful at work the whole time and they, they don't have the same sort of ability to socialize anymore they're really isolated because um you know they, they don't have that camaraderie of being able to have lunches and breaks and things right. together um so they've lost that the, the stress of what they're dealing with while they're at work is just incredible and then you know they go home and then they have to worry about okay well you know can i be with my partner can i hug my kids it's they're it's just incredible what, what these workers are going through. And I'm sure their frustration if they go out and see people not adhering to oh, yeah. what we've been asked to do as British Columbians of, of social distancing and wearing masks, that you know, it, that all just has to add on for these individuals. Is there something that can be done to help, though? Like, I know acknowledgement is, you know, very big, but what can we do? We don't want to have them continue on like this. No, we don't. And and that really comes down to the, the next step. Once we've been able to recognize what's happening and, and what level it's at, then the next thing are what are the strategies that we can start to put in place to try and um, help these individuals deal with this types of, these types of stress. So Lots of work ahead then, it sounds like. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Nath, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. All right. Have a good, lovely morning. You too. That's Lynette Stewart-Hill, the director at the Centre for Occupational Research and Testing at the University of Victoria. So they just released this a few hours ago. And what they did was they monitored nurses, as Lynette explained. They kind of gave them uh, almost like a Fitbit or, you know, like an Apple Watch or something like that. But something that would monitor um, how nurses were feeling, heartbeat, sleep patterns, all of that. And what they found is that the pandemic is having a really hard health impact on nurses, elevated levels of cortisol, disrupted sleep patterns, higher levels of stress. Uh, that's, you know, you just can't let people continue on like that. So what can you pause? Like, what can you do about that to help them? Uh, you'll be hearing more about that study today for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, making sure that we can produce medical equipment here at home has become incredibly important over the last year. And that is a booming industry for sure, whether it's PPE, you know, producing your own vaccine, 
all of that. I think people would like to see that done closer to home. But here's the problem. Industry experts say that sector is actually struggling to find the commercial real estate space to be able to do that, especially in markets like here in Vancouver. Joining us now to talk about those kinds of struggles is Kevin Nelson, who is the uh, CBRE Limited Executive Vice President. Kevin, thank you for being here. Hey, good morning, Simeon. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I know real estate is surprisingly hot right now, but what's it like in commercial real estate and trying to find some space to, you know, maybe manufacture something? Uh, you know what? Vancouver, unfortunately, fortunately, is one of the tightest markets in North America at present. And that's um, even more exasperated in industrial than it is in office currently. How tight is it? Uh, and in the industrial side, which does relate to life sciences, it's the second tightest market in North America. And in the office side, it's the same. It's second tightest market in North America. That's crazy. And so none of that has improved in the last year. There's all this talk about how, oh, more people working from home, that would open up space, but it hasn't gotten better. Uh, it's, you know, it's risen, it's risen notably. However, it's still, you know, technically a landlord's market. So it's, uh, which is, again, back when we were talking about life sciences, it's even more exasperated in the life sciences market. Yeah, tell me about that in the life sciences industry and market. What are they looking for? Where are they looking for space? Well, the industry likes to cluster generally around itself or around where the research is done. For example, UBC, UBC Hospital, BGH, and then in and around the large biotechs that we have in the region. So uh, from our point of view, it looks like UBC all the way through down Broadway, through Maine to Canby, and then out into the False Creek Flats is where the majority of life science is located in, in, the, in Metro Vancouver. Do you think that's going to get even tighter with, you know, the building of the new St. Paul's Hospital, which is supposed to be quite a, like a life sciences hub? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing about the life sciences um, intentions in and around St. Paul's is that they are planning for future uh, research facilities. So that could actually provide some uh, well-needed relief in and around the area where a lot of research will be done. So do you get a lot of um, like inquiries from life sciences companies that say they want to find some space? Yeah, more than ever, more than probably for the last decade. And that's a direct result of what the world is facing right now. It needs solutions in life sciences for the pandemic. And uh, the shine is on the industry. There are a lot of large financings which have been happening over the last 10 months. <clears throat> more to follow. You're going to hear some great Vancouver news in the next week or two. And this is causing rapid growth in our region, which is fantastic. Employment is growing. We're making a contribution where it matters for the pandemic. Uh, however, there's just no standing inventory for these people or these companies, I should say, to uh, move into. So companies like StemCell, Abcelera, Zymeworks, those are some of our largest, are in fact having to run through custom builds that take two to three years. Okay, well, first of all, we like good news, so I look forward to hearing what the good news is. Uh, but so these, yeah. I, I was wondering that about the companies then. So if they can't find what they're looking for, do they go elsewhere? Like, are we in danger of having that happen? Well, we've seen, like, um, yeah, we see it. We see one of two decisions are made. The first of which is your Abcelera. You commit to two design builds that are going to take you the next two to three years to have built in Maine to Canby. Same thing with Stem Cell out in Lake City and Burnaby. Mm-hmm. Or you split your operation and you do what you can do in Vancouver and you pick up additional space in Toronto. And of course, in Vancouver, we don't like to see that. No, we don't like to see that. So is there an effort being made? Like, Kevin, are people, are the people in charge paying attention, thinking, okay, we've got to make room for this? You know, the zoning and everything that, I guess, to answer your question most directly, the only thing that we could be doing, and we did it with the film and VFX industry, was you could induce investment 
further in the province if you felt globalization of life sciences showed its weaknesses through the pandemic, then yes, governments can have a, a role in sort of inducing investment. Having said that, all the pieces are available in our city to, you know, by zoning and such. The trick is it's a mature market. There's just not a lot of standing inventory. And anything that we require right now uh, almost requires tearing down a building or building something uh, from the start. Are some of your clients willing to do that? Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, it's the only choice if you want to remain in Vancouver at present. Your um, massive investments in converting warehouses, building buildings, or, um, you know, taking the, and of course, all this has a trade off and timeline. You'd love to be in as of yesterday, but it's going to take you the next 10 months to get sorted. Right. But still, as long as they're wanting to still make that commitment, that's, I guess, good for us. Kevin, thank you so much for your time. And you, thank you, and have a great day. You too. That's Kevin Nelson, the Executive Vice President at CBRE Limited, where they're dealing a lot with companies that are in the life sciences industry, right? So dealing with research and, you know, whether it's producing for PPE or producing, you know, more health-related products, stem cell research, you name it, they are looking to set up shop. And they're finding it increasingly difficult to do so. Although, as Kevin said, if they're committed, they're committed. It just means the timeline is longer. They're going to have to tear buildings down. But Vancouver has the number two, what does he say, tightest market for commercial real estate in North America, which makes it very, very difficult. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, planning is underway for our next federal budget, and it will be a significant one. I mean, think about the financial impact of all of the supports that we've gotten from the federal government over the last year and the cracks that the pandemic has exposed in our social safety net. So that's why the federal government is undertaking a consultation process to ask Canadians what you would essentially want to see in the budget. What would you like them to emphasize? What is a priority to you? How do we plan for the future when we also have to pay for all of these supports from the last year? So joining us now is Krista Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister and the Finance Minister of Canada. She's hosting a pre-budget consultation roundtable with British Columbians today. Thank you for joining us. It is great to join you, Simi, and that was a perfect introduction. Uh, You laid out all of our challenges so well, and I also had a chance to listen to the news uh, just a minute ago, and I'm so jealous that you guys are going to have eight degrees over the weekend. (laughs) Wow. We have no no snow. We have not had winter show up yet, really, but... uh, You mustn't mustn't gloat too much. Trying not to. Your poor snowbound fellow Canadians. Trying not to. Uh, Let's talk about this consultation process. What is going to look like today? Um, Well, I hope and I am confident um, it's going to be a great conversation. Um, uh, Like you, Simi, I used to be a reporter, and so I'm going to come with my notebook, and my objective is to talk very little and to listen a lot. I agree with you um, that the budget we're building is going to be really consequential for Canada. COVID has meant the deepest economic recession since the Great Depression. Uh, And so we're going to have a lot of work to do to get back those jobs, to get back that economic growth. I know we can do it. And I also know that people in Ottawa do not have a monopoly by any means on good ideas. And so I'm keen to hear great ideas from across the country and really looking forward to talking to the Surrey Board of Trade and the South Asian Business Association later today. Are you hearing concerns about essentially the bill and when it comes due about all of the supports and programs that we've had over the last year? 
I mean, I and and I share those concerns. I mean, I think Canadians are basically prudent and careful and thoughtful. It's one of the things I love about our country. And people understand that we have had to spend a lot of money to get through COVID. Eight out of $10 spent in Canada to support individual Canadians and to support Canadian businesses have been spent by the federal government. And we're not through COVID yet, so we're going to have to provide more support. I am 100%, even 1,000% convinced that providing that support is the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do for our health and our lives because you can't ask people to comply with these public health measures if they don't have a safety net. So that's one reason it's the right thing right. to do. But what about it's the right thing to do for compassionate reasons? And let me just give you one quick economic reason, Simi, which is, you know, one of the things we're so keen to do is to provide as many businesses as possible with a bridge to get through to the other end of the COVID crisis so that when we're able to fully reopen our economy, there are businesses there that can reopen. And one of the things that we saw in the 2008-2009 recession was we let too much scarring happen to the Canadian economy, and that Mm -hmm. slowed down our rebound. What about the priorities? Do that again, right? What about the priorities and the government has had over the last few years? Things like a national childcare program. What about the idea of sick pay, sick leave for people who don't have it? How is our social safety net going to change as a result of the pandemic? Well, let me kind of take those questions one by one. Um, chi- early learning and childcare, I think, is a great issue to raise because. One of the things that I am hearing a lot, and I will be interested uh, to discover whether I hear this from the Surrey Board of Trade and the South Asian Business Association, is, you know, people are used to thinking of child care as early learning and child care as a feminist issue, a women's issue, maybe a mother's issue. I think it's all of those things, and I really believe it in it from that perspective. But this year, and I also mean in 2020, uh, since COVID started, for the first time, I am hearing real calls from economists, from business leaders, from CEOs saying we need early learning and child care as an economic strategy, as a pro-growth strategy. And there's a lot of great studies about Quebec because there's a province in Canada that has had early learning and child care in place for a couple of decades. They have the highest labor force participation rate of mothers with children under three anywhere in the world. And that produces fantastic economic results. So I see early learning and child care as a pro-growth strategy, as one of the excellent things we could do to get back jobs and growth right. and build our way back out of the COVID recession. But is that something that you would build into the budget this year or is it going to have to wait? I think that it's something that we're already working on, actually. It's something that we talked about in the fall economic statement and that we put in place some 
foundational steps. Uh, obviously, it's something that the federal government can't do by itself. It's something that we need to work on with the provinces. And I have to say, BC's finance minister, Selena, I had a conversation with uh, all the provincial and territorial finance ministers last Friday. Uh, and your finance minister uh, spoke out, I hope she won't mind my saying this, about her support for early learning and child care. So I'm really looking forward to a great partnership with BC on that issue. Okay, let's talk as well then about the possibility of an election here. Are you factoring that in, into the whole budget process? We are a minority in Parliament, and we're very conscious of that and of the humility that needs to come with that. And so, you know, I'm aware that uh, we have to realize that you know, we need to win confidence votes in order to continue to be the government of Canada. When it comes to building the budget, the only thing that I am thinking about, I'm thinking about two things, actually. One, we have to finish and win the fight against COVID. That is economic priority, number one. Number two, jobs, 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 growth, growth, growth. Is there going to be more encouragement perhaps in that budget as well for, say, the life sciences industry and a lot of criticism towards the government for not having, you know, vaccine development here in Canada, more essentially more of that pharmaceutical biobusiness right here in this country? Um, I am a big believer first of all, in investing in our universities and investing in primary research and in science, a fantastic thing to do. And I really do think um, that COVID, one of the lessons of COVID has to be uh, that Canada will be well served in having a strong biosciences, biomanufacturing sector. And I have to give a shout out to BC. Uh, You guys already have some great companies like Abcelera, like Acuitas, um, that have been really, really involved in the fight against COVID. So we have a lot to build on. Also, healthcare funding. I know a lot of uh, provinces and premiers have been saying they need more help when it comes to healthcare funding. Will there be more assistance to the provinces coming? Well, let me point out, Simi, that we have provided tremendous assistance already to the provinces and territories in the fight against COVID. Nine, more than $19 billion in the Safe Restart Agreement over the summer, and then another $2 billion for the Safe Restart of Schools. A lot of that was directly about health care funding. And, you know, we're having an ongoing conversation about the future of health care in Canada. It's something that we talked about with the provincial and territorial finance ministers last Friday. For me, on health care right now, the priority is COVID and fighting COVID, winning that fight. And that, that, that's expensive and that's something that we are definitely, uh, the federal government definitely understands it needs to be a whole of country effort. All right. And very quickly, when is the budget coming down? Uh, stay tuned. Oh, don't have an exact date yet. All right. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Okay, thank you very much, Simi. Really appreciate it. That's Krista Freeland, Deputy Prime Minister of Canada and Finance Minister, uh, talking about the budget consultations going on today, speaking with the Surrey Board of Trade, getting an idea of what British Columbians want to see. What would you tell them? What is important? You know, many governments have said this is a chance to kind of remake the social safety net. And we've seen a lot of support from the federal government over the last year, which ones should be permanent or should they be permanent? Some of them. 
This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We've got Family Day weekend coming up, and both Premier John Horgan and Dr. Bonnie Henry have now said to BC residents, listen, stay home for Family Day weekend, even though we know that interprovincial travel is still causing concern in many communities around our province. There was an outbreak at Big White that we have talked about. Huge problem for that community. Uh, we know places like Revelstoke and Fernie have been saying the same thing. And now we're seeing more COVID-19 exposures in restaurants, bars and pubs in the community of Whistler. So let's talk to the Whistler Mayor, Jack Crompton, about some of the challenges being faced there. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Are you worried about some of these numbers? You know, I, I, I do my work as hard as I can to turn my worry into action. Uh, and yeah, it's concerning. And um, we're really trying to work with our businesses to ensure that uh, all of their staff know um, the responses that they should take. And, and the challenge with this is that um, the majority of the transmission is happening in shared living and in, in social settings. And that's a tough um, um, place to sort of lever any control from government because it's in people's homes. Um, but certainly, yeah, I'm concerned and our, our community is concerned. Do you feel that there are um, people coming, too many people coming from perhaps out of town, out of region, out of country to Whistler? There are people, but that's not the, that's, that's definitely not the core of this. Right now it's in our town and it's moving between people who know each other best. Um, and so I, I'm joining my voice with Dr. Henry and, and, and Premier Horgan and asking people to stay home, to stay local, to um, really um, spend family day with your family in your town. Um, but as I said, the, the real challenge for us is to try to um, talk to our community about the importance of, of keeping your guard up. Yeah, what happens uh, unfortunately, when, you... when you're with people that you you love and know the, the best yeah what happens when you do try to talk to members of the committee and say hey listen you, you can't keep doing this well I, you know i i've seen this as a 99 percent of people are on board and uh so it does transmit amongst people that are really doing their very best to um um respond correctly um, and then there are some that obviously are doing the exact wrong thing, but the majority are, are doing their best, it's giving them the tools to, to, to take this on. Do you think there should be more regulations put in place? Like, how do you get through to those people if just talking to them and asking them to do this isn't working? Well, it's, a, it's against provincial law now to go to your friend's house. I'm not sure how much more aggressive we can get in lawmaking, it seems to me that we really, as a, as a community, need to take this on ourselves and respond accordingly and stay home ourselves. Um, right. And there, there's nobody to blame here. In my view, this is an everybody problem that needs an everybody solution. 
What about enforcement then, Mayor Crompton? Because I know when we spoke uh, to Big White, they were saying, listen, they, they wanted RCMP help in enforcing some of the rules. Then what about in Whistler? Do you need that? We are, we are doing enforcement. We've been giving out tickets for, for uh, people being in other, each other's homes and parties and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, enforcement is part of it. Enforcement is part of it. Um, new rules that might come through our, our conversations with the province uh, may be part of it. Um, and, and certainly talking to the community and asking them to do their part is, is part of it. it it's not, there's not one silver bullet. If there were, I think we would have used it by now. Is it, how would you say the makeup is of the people who are coming to Whistler right now? Would you say it's mostly Canadians that are coming there? Are you seeing international travelers? Very. I haven't seen any international travelers. I mean, I think that there's, there's stories of people running into international travel, so I don't want to say that that's, that that's not happening. Um, but uh, right now, it's, it's quiet up here. And um, it was busy over the holidays, and, um, but it's quiet right now. How quiet is it? Like in terms of a normal season, are, are businesses suffering? Or are there still people going to restaurants? Oh, Simi, it's been devastating <laughs> for businesses. I mean, this is a, a problem that has touched us in every part of our community. And, and in my opinion, we have to deal with this as a health issue so we can get to the other side so that we can get back to business. And right. we're not trying to keep a vibrant business <laughs> uh, uh, going right now. It just doesn't exist. And so um, it's tough. Uh, from a health perspective, but certainly also from an economic perspective. It must be so frustrating, though, when you know that, okay, it's, you know, people are able to ski. Transmission is not happening in those lineups for the ski lift or anything like that. It's just when people let their guard down away from the ski hill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It is. It's, the word that comes to me over and over again is insidious. It just is so insidious. It moves so easily amongst the people we love the most. And that's what's so hard. How has this been for, say, first responders and, and healthcare up in Whistler? That must be tough, too. And we're all tired. I, I, I think 10 months of asking for urgent response to this, uh, a call 10 months in for more urgency is tough for people to hear. But it's what we need to do. We need to continue to respond with urgency using the tools that we've learned over the last 10 months. Do you think the um, message is getting through? Like here you are again, you're talking to us and you're hoping that people listen, but is the message you think getting through? Yeah. I mean, we've, our, our, our community's responded well in the past and I'm, I, I know we'll respond well again. Um, it's, it's, uh, if it, it's required of us and, and we'll, we'll rise to it. All right. We'll see what happens. Uh, best of luck. Thank you for your time. Simi, thank you for your interest in our town. I appreciate it. That's Jack Crompton, who is the mayor of Whistler. They are seeing a rise in COVID-19 exposures in, as the mayor points out, social settings. I know you've probably seen the pictures, as I have, of people lined up for the ski lift. And you think, well, that doesn't look good. That's a lot of people lined up for the ski lift. That's not where the exposures are happening. It's off of the ski hill when the skiing is done. It is the, as he, Mayor Crompton told us, people gathering in social situations, getting together, having parties, whatever the case may be, that's what's causing the problem. He says they're doing enforcement. 
if that's how do you get through to people then? How do you get through short of shutting things down, which people don't want to do? It's you want to try to maintain that balance somehow. Short of shutting things down, how do you get the message through to people? This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we're still learning so much about what is going on in our oceans out there. In fact, there's some recently published data that paints a pretty stark picture of the decline in certain species in our oceans, such as sharks and rays. We wanted to learn more about it this morning. So joining us is Nick Delvey, an SFU professor and Canada Research Chair in Marine Biodiversity and Conservation. Nick, thank you for being here. No problem. Thanks for calling me up. Well, how did this information get collected? Well, I've been um, very fortunate in the past 10 years that I've been um, a co-chair of an international network of 180 shark scientists and conservationists around the world. And so over the last decade, we've been pulling together all of our expertise and knowledge from all of their field work, going to fish markets and uh, working with government agencies try and pull together all of what we call time series of abundance of sharks and rays. And these are like the stock trackers of how many sharks and rays are in the ocean. And so for the last couple of years, we've been trying to make sense of this vast quantity of data. And we basically pulled together um, abundance for 18 of these species. And when you take it together, there's been about a 71% decline in their abundance in my lifetime since 1970. Is that the first time then that this information has been collected in the way that you just described? Yeah, so we've had little jigsaw pieces being published over the last 15 or 20 years. And those little jigsaw pieces, say, from um, off the coast of Florida in the Western Atlantic or off the coast of Australia in the Pacific, have warned that some species have undergone very steep declines. And and those very local papers were the driver for us to do this global paper to go, well, is this just a local problem and the Australians and the US should deal with it? Or is this a global problem that will require a global response? Can Can the research point to specific reasons why the decline is so dramatic? Yes. So... One thing that we managed to do is to try and figure out what the cause was. And every day we hear about the various woes that our planet faces, from plastics to pollution to climate change. And the reality is, at the moment, the key driver of the disappearance of sharks is overfishing. The number of fishing vessels has doubled that are catching sharks. The catch of sharks themselves has tripled that combined with the increasing rarity has led to this kind of spiral where, you know, there's 18 times greater chance that a shark will be killed by fishing today than in 1970. So we made a very clear connection to the role of overfishing and driving shark declines. But Nick, it seems like we talk a lot about overfishing, right? So are we not learning? Are we still just doing it? Yeah, it's very hard to turn the dial on overfishing because you and I as members of Joe Public, can't really see what's going on. And if we see what's going on, then we take action and urge our policymakers to act. So when we see litter, we get some somebody to do about it, somebody to do something about it, or we do something ourselves. But it's very hard for the average individual to make an impact on fisheries. And it's taken the slow grind to persuade 
persuade governments to do things about it. And some governments have been incredible leaders in the past couple of years, notably Canada. And what are, what is it that Canada is doing? Well, locally, I just remembered this morning that, you know, we catch sharks coastally in the waters of British Columbia. We catch two skates, mainly for export to Korea, and we do catch some dogfish. And 98% of the shark catch on the waters of British Columbia is sustainable. Now, we know how to do that. We just need to roll that out across the world. Now, internationally, for these sharks, Canada has been a bit of a leader in the last two years. Um, One of the biggest problems is very steep declines in a valuable shark called a short fin mako. And this is the fastest shark in the world. It reaches speeds of up to 70 kilometers an hour. And it's undergone steep declines. And Canada last year banned retention in its Atlantic fisheries. So basically, fishermen there couldn't bring it back to shore. Mm -hmm. And so they also did what we need many other countries to do. They started work on the international stage to persuade other countries to join in in implementing the scientific advice on catch regulations for the species in the Atlantic. Right. So do you say, is, is there hope then, Nick, would you say? Absolutely. Um, you know, if, if we were to go forward without any change or without any hope, then that decline is certain to get worse. But over the last six years, we've seen more and more countries joining in with protecting or regulating international trade in the meat and the fins of these sharks. Right. So the trade is increasingly regulated, but that doesn't necessarily stop the killing. So what we need to do is persuade the agencies that manage tuna fisheries to also really start to do a good job of managing these sharks that are mainly the collateral damage of tuna Mm -hmm. fisheries. A lot of work to do. Nick, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate that. Nick Delvey is an SFU professor, Canada Research Chair in Marine Biodiversity and Conservation. A new, very comprehensive research that they did shows a steep decline in sharks and rays, uh, something like 70% since 1970, which is a huge impact out there. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we've been talking about the increase in cybersecurity breaches that people have been experiencing during the pandemic. So much more pressure, right? Because we're using our computers and those that link to the outside world has become so much more important. Well, today is actually Data Privacy Day. So something everything everybody needs to stay on top of. Joining us now for more on this is Steve Wilson from the BCIT Center for Digital Transformation. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me on today. Well, do you think this is something that more and more people are keeping at the top of their mind? Absolutely. You know what? And um, if you think about how we transitioned over the last year, we're spending more and more time online. And then, you know, you look recently at the Stats Can report that came out in October. I mean, it's, I think it's phenomenal to see that we've got uh, more and more people paying attention to what we do online, particularly when it comes to data privacy. So it's a, it's a really good uh, 
Right. And what about what about data theft? Are we seeing more of that as well? No, absolutely. We're seeing more of that as well. And I think we could expect that as we're transitioning because of COVID. And it'll probably continue on to 2021. But at the same time, we've also got a lot more people paying attention to what they're doing online and how their data is being protected. So I think it's, it's, that's good to see as well. I would imagine that that's a growing industry then, right, to try to get into that digital security sector? Oh, absolutely. You know, and it has been for years and will continue to be for probably the next couple of years at least anyways. You know, we see, you know, there's a shortage of people in the industry now, even the post-secondary space. We're always trying to get more and more people into cybersecurity programs. So it's definitely it's something that people are interested in getting into. This is a great opportunity. Is this a, Steve, is this something that we are going to have to look after ourselves uh, or are networks getting better at this? Or is this a workplace issue or do we personally have to make sure that we are secure at home? No, I honestly think it comes down to uh, a little bit of all of that and, and to say that I think everybody is individual, so we have to pay attention to what we're doing online and how we're maintaining our data and privacy. At the same time, businesses also have to be aware of that um, because of how are they maintain people's information and then from a reputational standpoint of stuff that's happened. So it, I think everybody kind of has to be aware of it and have a plan in place moving um, forward. Well, who's trying to get our information? Where are these potential hacks coming from? Oh, well, it's, you know, it's been around for so long now. We've got data breaches that come from all over the world. We've also got, there's been an uptick over the last year with uh, internal breaches. Um, so it's, it's just, you never really know where it's going to come from. So I think it's really important just to make sure you've got everything locked down in the first place. How do you do this for yourself, like at home? How do you keep everything <laughs> secure? You know what? I, uh, I probably spend too much time trying to secure everything, and I'm always... Uh, preaching to my family and, and particularly the kids about their data privacy. And, um, and it, it's great to see uh, the transitions, particularly with my youngest, she's 15, and um, she's starting to talk about it with her friends at school. Um, they're changing their, their settings on their, their devices. They're being more cognizant about what they do on social media. So I think that trend is great to see, and I think we'll see more of that moving forward. You know, they don't just roll your eyes, their eyes when you tell them about it one more time to make oh. sure make sure they check their privacy settings. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know what? Uh, um, but it's important to talk about. It. You know what? It, it's it's part of their lives. It's part of all of their lives now. I mean, you look at the transition of people going over the last year to being remote working and spending more time online. It, it's so important to have at least a uh, a basic understanding of individual industry when it comes to even just the security aspect of it. Right. See, but a lot of people wouldn't even know where to start, right? Like they'll listen to us talking about this, but for some, they may think it doesn't affect them or they may think, I don't even know where to start looking at this. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why it's, it's today, you know, Data Privacy Day is a really great example. There's lots of resources online. Um, we're always preaching the same thing all the time. It's all about just taking a bit of time to um, learn some of the basic things you can do to protect yourself and, and your online as well as your data. You know, from locking down your device, your system and software updates, having backups, which is a big one that a lot of people still aren't doing. And then when you're finished with your device, don't leave it piled in the house or in the garage somewhere. Make sure you have a, a plan in place to get rid of that device securely when you're finished with it. Now, when you say, like, when you're finished with your device, what do you mean? Like, when you stopped using it, when you moved on to a new one? Yeah, you know, a good example would be my own household. Like, we're constantly buying new devices, new laptops, um, new phones. Instead of just some piling the old ones up, make sure that they're securely wiped um, and then they can actually be recycled or repurposed for some other one wants to use it. Or, you know, you have it shredded and recycled properly so you know there's no chance that people are going to get access to any data that's still on the device. 
I think most of the time people are just excited to have a new device, right? And they think, oh, oh I'm done with that one. Don't need it anymore. Yeah, no, absolutely. I and mean, even you see that more and more, particularly around Christmas time, everybody wants the latest and the greatest when it comes to technology. And it's always, you know, like, you know I say this at home as well, like, do you really need that? Do you really need that device? It's like, yeah, well, everyone else has one, so I want one as well. So and then the old one just sits there, and it's, you know, typically only a year old. So Yeah, so yeah. true. So, yeah. okay, then, Steve, some quick things then. A couple things that people can just look at today when it comes to their devices to make sure that they are a little more cyber security aware. Absolutely. Go, go online. Go to staysafeonline.org. They've got phenomenal resource-based information there. They've got live webinars today. Uh, UBC's got some great uh, resources as well today. Or even BCIT. Go on the BCIT website. They've got lots of resources as well. And it, it tends to be a little overwhelming for people. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's, I kind of think of the same thing when we talk about, like, fraud prevention. Um, don't make it overwhelming. Look at one or two things you can do. Like, if you don't have a password set on your phone or... Do that, and then look at security and additional information later on. But just do something. Don't don't leave yourself insecure online. All right, Steve. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. YouTube, uh, Steve Wilson, Director at the BCIT Center for Digital Transformation. Today is Data Privacy Day. And yeah, you can be like Steve's kids and roll your eyes if somebody tries to talk to you about it, or you can check your settings, make sure they are as, you know, on the more secure side so that your data is more protected. A lot of people probably still haven't done that, I'm guessing.